All right, you can open your Bibles to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. In some weeks, we're going to start an exposition of the book of John. We're going to work passage by passage through the Gospel of John. Uh, As I prepare to go through that book, however, we are going to do a topical series um, on forgiveness. And so that's what we began last week. And that's going to help us prepare to work through the Gospel of John expositionally. We started a series on forgiveness. And we started out in Luke chapter 11 with the Lord's Prayer. We pointed out the fact that in all the things mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, only one of those aspects of that model prayer does Jesus expand upon. And if you go over to Matthew chapter 6, we see that after speaking, after giving the model prayer, he then says in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive their trespasses, that is, those who offend you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Very interesting and a little bit disconcerting, but we recognize that God has tied the forgiveness that we receive from Him relationally to the forgiveness that we offer to others. And we made the distinction, the difference between what we might call soteriological forgiveness, that is, this is not forgiveness for salvation, but this is that forgiveness within the context of the relationship of child and son. And God says, don't come to me and seek my forgiveness if you are harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards others. Instead, deal with that and then come and seek forgiveness. And so we began to say last week, that there are destructive effects of unforgiveness. And remember, we gave that analogy of the woman gardening. The suggestion was that some of us have a garden of grudges, bitterness, animosity, things that we haven't dealt with and things that, frankly, we nurture and we nourish and we come back to and we bring back into our minds and we work up that ground and we're constantly fixated on those past offenses. And the suggestion was that forgiveness, the reason why God has attached so much importance to this relational forgiveness between one another, is because unforgiveness is destructive. We began to look at a few points. We said that unforgiveness between brothers and sisters, horizontal forgiveness, is destructive because it betrays the forgiveness of God. That is, as I said, God has linked the fact that he has forgiven us to the expectation that we forgive. When we looked at that parable in Matthew 18 uh, with that servant that was forgiven much, and then he went out and he refused to forgive the one who had uh, owed him money. And the whole point of that was when we look in the face of the forgiveness we've received from our Father and then fail to translate that to free forgiveness to others, we become ungrateful towards the forgiveness that we've received. It betrays the forgiveness of God. And then we said it bypasses the justice of God. We understand that all vengeance belongs to the Lord. To withhold bitterness may not be violence, but what it does is it reserves for ourselves the right to hold others to account for the offenses that they have perpetrated against us. Biblically, what we see is that the believer is to cast all those things upon the justice of God, understanding that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is the only just judge, and he asks us... put. Put that where it belongs. Put it in the sphere of my responsibility, and then you experience the freedom of forgiveness so that then you can offer what? Love. You can even pray for your enemies. You can even love those who hate you. Why? Because you know that justice is being taken care of. It's in my hands. So it it doesn't say justice doesn't matter. It simply says justice is not ours. Justice is his. And so uh, when we 
are unforgiving, we're reserving the right then to be the judge. So unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. It bypasses the justice of God. And then we said it belittles the suffering of God. We said it belittles the suffering of Christ. What we mean by that is Jesus Christ suffered for the sins committed against him, for the sins committed against God. He, the only Holy One, gave himself suffering and ultimate eternal suffering, bearing the wrath of God for the sins we perpetrated against him. And if he, the Holy One, who deserved no suffering, would take upon himself our sins and to suffer as the only innocent one, and then we turn around, the sinners that we are, and refuse to forgive those who sin against us, is actually elevating ourselves above the worth of Christ. He says, my suffering is too great. My suffering is too great. My worth is too lofty. I refuse to uh, suffer at the hands of others. And in doing so, we fail to follow the example of our own Lord. So unforgiveness betrays the forgiveness of God. It bypasses the justice of God. It belittles the suffering of God. Today, this one's going to be hard, and I have a lot to say, and I already talk fast, so this is going to be hard. Please stick with me here. It's going to be hard for some of us. We're going to see that unforgiveness is destructive because it balks at the sovereignty of God. It balks at the sovereignty of God. What does that word mean? Balks. To consider something and to refuse it. To, to look at something like coming to an obstacle, assessing it, and refusing to proceed. No, I'm not going to accept that. This is a hard topic for some people to come to terms with. As we explore the sovereignty of God this morning, and specifically the fact that God is even sovereign over those circumstances that cause us hurt, we're going to struggle. Hopefully you're going to see that when we accept the sovereignty of God over circumstances that even cause us hurt, this is actually liberating. It's actually freeing. To accept the sovereignty of God is to imbue even the most difficult circumstances with meaning, to imbue them with purpose. To embrace God's sovereignty is to come to a place where we're willing to submit everything to his divine control and then just to rest. This morning we're going to Look into the life of a man who understood what it was to be hated without a cause. We're going to look into the life of a man who was falsely accused. We're going to look into the life of a man who suffered unjustly at the hands of wicked men and women. This is the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. We're going to run through his life to set the context quite quickly. Joseph was the son of of Jacob. He was one of 12 sons, and he was the favored son. Genesis 37.3 says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is bad parenting. A favorite. And that favoritism shown symbolically through this coat of many colors. And the Bible says that Joseph's brothers hated him. So much so, they just could never get along. Always arguing, always fighting. It says they could not speak peacefully to him. You say, well, that's, that's bad. But it gets worse. Because on top of being favored by his earthly father, the Bible says that God the Father gave a gift to Joseph. And that Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams. 
And Joseph, I think some people might think that Joseph is a little arrogant here. I think Joseph is just incredibly naive. God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And some of these dreams that God was giving him was really the interpretation was that the day was going to come where his family would actually bow before him. Well, now, come on. If, if you know that your siblings already despise you and they can't speak peacefully to you, and then you're going to say, oh, guess what? The Lord showed me a dream. You're all going to bow down to me. Come on. It just fomented the anger in his brothers so that in Genesis 37, 8, it says, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Well, one day while the brothers were out, uh, Joseph was sent to check on his brothers in Genesis chapter 37, verse 18. And the Bible says that when his brothers saw him coming from a distance, this was their thought process. In Genesis 37, 19. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the, one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. The brothers conspire together to kill Joseph. Here he comes, let's kill him, let's throw him in a pit, and then we'll just go tell dad that, it, that an animal killed him. Well, one of the brothers convinces the other brothers not to kill him, uh, but simply to throw him in a pit where some other animal or something will come and kill him. But Genesis 37, 23 says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, that robe that represented that favoritism from the father, and, the, uh, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the Bible says that Joseph's brothers then just sat down to eat. Having just dispatched with their brother, throwing him in a pit, assuming that he's going to die, and they just sit down and have a meal. Genesis 37, verse 25, says that while they were there eating, they look up and they see a band of traveling Ishmaelites coming. These are merchants. These are tradespeople. And they have camels and gum and balm and myrrh and so on. They're going down to Egypt to trade. And so a thought pops into their mind. Well, wait a second. We've gotten rid of our brother, but we haven't profited anything. Is there any way that we can profit from our brother's death or our brother? And so... The idea comes in uh, Genesis 37, 26. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders, traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And so now the brothers who hated him have sold him. They've sold him as a slave. So summarize. Loved by his earthly father, bestowed with special gift from his heavenly father, but hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, uh, left to die, but then pulled up and sold into slavery. Well, I mean, kind of a beneficial turn of events, you might think, in that he was sold as a house slave to a man named Potiphar in Egypt. And Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the Bible says in Genesis 37, 36, that he's the captain of the guard. And the Bible says that as Joseph continued in Potiphar's house, the Lord blessed him. He really blessed everything that he touched at this point. But there was a problem in Potiphar's house, and that was Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife made unwelcome advances to Joseph. Repeatedly, over and over and over and over again. And Joseph did what any man should do and rejected those advances. To the point that she grabbed onto him at one point, and he fled. He fled, and she had his robe in his hand, and he left naked. 
Well, this woman then, seeing that she had been scorned by Joseph and rejected, lodges a false accusation. Genesis 39, 19, it says, As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, that is, accusing Joseph of rape, says, uh, the Potiphar says, This is the way your servant, I'm sorry, his wife says, This is the way your servant treated me. And his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Hated by his brothers, sold in, uh, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, now falsely accused and imprisoned. There in prison, he meets two men, a baker and a butler. These men have dreams. One day, Joseph, having a gift to interpret dreams, interprets those dreams for the butler and for the baker. Joseph interprets a dream that was given to him. Uh, I'm sorry, gives, interprets a dream for the cupbearer. The interpretation of the dream being, in three days you'll be reinstated to your position serving Pharaoh. The baker hears this and says, oh, that's good news. Uh, well, do one for me. <laughs> Joseph interprets the dream for the baker and says, well, in three days, Pharaoh will decapitate you and impale you on a pole. Then the birds will eat your flesh. That was his interpretation. Well, when the cupbearer and what Joseph said actually did come to pass, and when the cupbearer is finally freed from prison, Joseph kind of begs him, listen, you're going to go see Pharaoh. Remember me. Remember me when it's well with you. In Genesis 40, verse 14. Please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Well... Thankfully, the cupbearer did remember Joseph. Sadly, he remembered him two years later. He remembered him because Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream, and nobody could interpret it for him, and Pharaoh's cupbearer then remembered, oh, I remember. I mean, do you ever walk into the kitchen and forget what you were going in there for? Well, this is much worse than that. Uh, this is two years later. A dream. Oh, I remember now. There's somebody falsely accused. He's been rotting in prison for two years. In Genesis 41, verse 16, Joseph uh, is brought to Pharaoh, and he says that he can interpret the dream. And Joseph says this, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, long story short, the process of this, Joseph actually interprets the dream properly. There's going to be so many years of famine that's coming. And the advice that Joseph gives is let's, all these years of plenty that are coming, let's gather some extra and let's store it up so that, to get us through the years of famine. As a consequence, Pharaoh actually uh, installs Joseph as the second-in-command in Egypt. You say, well, that's a nice turn of events. This famine spreads exactly as Joseph says, years of plenty and then years of famine, and this even spread uh, to the land of his father and brothers. Now, think about this. You're in prison for two years You're in prison, and you think about the events that have transpired. You're hated by your brothers. You are thrown into a pit. You're sold into slavery for nothing more than being favored by your father, which you have no control over, being given gifts by the Heavenly Father, which you have no control over, unjustly accused, then thrown into prison. And probably the worst accusation that could be lodged against a man is a false accusation of rape. And there he is in prison. Now, what would we be doing for those two years there in jail? We would have a lot of time to think, right? Something tells me that we would be spending those two years stewing in bitterness and animosity and unforgiveness. We'd probably be spending two years trying to think about how we can execute or plot vengeance. 
Well, let's look at Joseph's response when he finally comes face to face with his brothers. The famine in Egypt spreads. It spreads even to the land of his brothers and his father. They now are forced to come to Egypt to beg for food because of Joseph's wise advice. Egypt has a surplus. And so Genesis 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And this is when they're standing before him, having come to Egypt for food. They came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. And eventually after Jacob dies, uh, and we're skipping over a lot here, but eventually the brothers after their father die uh, have a thought. They think, well, now that dad's dead, Joseph, having been kind to us before, may actually now execute judgment on us, because frankly, they knew they were guilty, and they knew anybody in their right mind would seek vengeance, and anybody in their right mind who had a position of authority where they actually could exact justice is going to. And so they're fearful of their brother after their father dies. And so they come up with this conspiracy and a lie. They're going to go to Joseph. Now, this doesn't sound uh, suspicious at all, but we're, we're going to go to Joseph and say, Your father gave the command before he died, Genesis 50, verse 17, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servant of the God of your father. And so they come and they say this to Joseph. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But now listen, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, we're done with the history of Joseph. What's going on here? What's going on in Joseph's mind? How is he able to extend such kindness to those whom everybody would expect that he would seek vengeance upon? Listen, Joseph understood he was a victim. He understood that uh, all of his suffering was illegitimate. He was hated unjustly by his brothers. Really, the, the, the object of a plot to murder, sold into slavery, sold into Potiphar's house, falsely accused, prison for two years. But when it comes time for Joseph to face his perpetrators, not only did he forgive them while he held the power to execute judgment, but he actually says, be comforted. He says he spoke kindly to them. He says, I'm going to take care of you and your children. So here's the question. That's your 18-minute introduction. Sorry. How can we respond to hurts and offenses the way that Joseph did? How can we look at all that has been unjustly to us and respond the way that Joseph did? We can respond the way that Joseph did if we understand what Joseph understood. We must understand and trust what Joseph understood and trusted, and that is the sovereignty of God. 
But first of all, what did Joseph understand? First of all, Joseph understood the completeness of God's sovereignty. He understood the completeness of God's sovereignty. Genesis 41, verse 28, it says, And it is, as I told Pharaoh, he said, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And this is Joseph interpreting the dream for Pharaoh. What's Joseph confessing here? He's confessing the fact that there is a divine, transcendent being behind the scenes who is doing all of these things. The famine, God's doing that. The years of plenty, God is doing that. There's a transcendent being who's working all these things together. In Genesis 41, 32, Joseph says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Verse 45 and verse 5 says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph sees the working of God even in the midst of trials and personal offenses. He says, don't be grieved. Because in actuality, God is responsible for this. Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said in verse 19, do not fear for am I in the place of God? What's Joseph doing? Remember we learned that unforgiveness bypasses the justice of God? Joseph is saying, I'm not God. Don't be fearful of me. I'm not the ultimate judge. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but what? God meant it for good. And that word meant is important to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. But Joseph sees in all of his suffering, and what we should see in all of our suffering, even at the hands of wicked men, we ought to see divine meaning. God is working. He has a purpose. Since I know he works things for my good, I can trust him. Not only can I trust him, but I can pardon those who have offended me. What Joseph experienced from any outsider would be, appear to be a series of unfortunate, random twists of fate. One could look at Joseph's life and what he suffered and pity him. Just pity him. Well, it's a shame how life treated him. You know people like this? It just seems like everything goes wrong. Joseph could have resigned to simply being a mere victim of fate. And so many people are driven to depression and substance abuse and things like this because they just feel everything around them is out of control and they're constantly the victim. Victim of circumstances, a victim of people and so on. It's completely out of their control. Joseph did not resign himself as a mere victim of fate because he knew that there was a transcendent reality which governs all of circumstances and that is the sovereignty of God. Joseph understood that God's sovereign will governs the universe. He understood what Isaiah would later say in Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's sovereignty. Joseph understood that God knows the end from the beginning. It's all according to his counsel. It's all according to his plan. Everything that happens, therefore, is according to his will. Psalm 135, verse 5 says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his, the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things work together according to his purposes. Daniel 4, verse 35 it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
God governs the universe according to his will. Therefore, there's no such thing as chance or randomness of fate. Therefore, we cannot be the victims of chance or victims of fate. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 47 verse 2 says, The Lord the Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. God's sovereignty means that he's Lord of all. Everything's subject to him. He is subject to no one and to nothing. There is no law outside of God to which he is accountable or to that which he must answer. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. There's another man in Scripture who can testify to this, who suffered uh, incredibly. Somebody else that others looking at him would say, Wow, look at all this tragedy. Look, look at all this randomness. Look at how fate has treated you. And that's Job. What did Job say in Job 23, verse 13? Speaking of God, he says, but he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Job understood that his life and all the events of his life and all the circumstances, even those that caused struggle and difficulty were in the hand of the Lord and were appointed for him by the Lord. The fact is God is sovereign over circumstances. He's sovereign over circumstances. God is transcendent, but in his transcendence, that doesn't mean that he's not involved intimately in the details of our lives. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And then it says this, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. We have a transcendent God who's responsible for all of creation, but that same transcendent God gets involved in the minutia of our lives so that the Bible can say that he makes poor and he makes rich. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. God's sovereignty over circumstances is obvious in the account of Joseph. You could even fast forward and go to Moses after Joseph is there and his family settles in Egypt and they populate Egypt. They multiply to the point where there's millions of Israelites in Egypt. And remember the story where the new Pharaoh comes and doesn't remember Joseph, and then there's slavery uh, that ends up being imposed upon Israel. And remember that there's an order to kill the male children of the Israelites. And remember that there's a woman who has a child, and uh, in order to save that child, puts him in a basket and floats him down the stream. What is she doing? She's just entrusting her baby to randomness? No, she's trusting the sovereignty of God. She floats her child uh, down the river. And then what? Pharaoh's daughter comes and draws the baby out, calls him Moses, which means drawn out. And remember the story? After having pulled the baby out of the stream, a girl comes and runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Oh, I see that's an Israelite child. Would you like me to go find an Israelite woman who can nurse this child? And it happens to be Moses' mother. Not only is it Moses' mother, but now Pharaoh's daughter says that she's going to give wages to her. So now she's paying Moses' mother to nurse Moses. And now Moses and Moses' mother have this protection from the household of the king. And actually being paid, uh, she is to nourish her own child. And you say, what a series of amazing coincidences. Clearly, 
God sovereignly works through circumstances. Not random chance. He's sovereign over everything. No limit to his sovereignty, otherwise it's not sovereignty. Joseph understood this. The reality of God's sovereignty over circumstances should allow us to look at hurts like Joseph did. Even at the hands of others. We should be able to look past the intentions of those who harm us and see behind that, what? The fact that God means something through this. This is why Joseph could forgive his brothers. Joseph understood the completeness of God's sovereignty. Next of all, Joseph accepted the conundrum of God's sovereignty. What does that word mean, conundrum? It's just something we, we, it, it, very difficult to understand. A riddle, a question that just doesn't make any sense. So twisted that it is, it's hard to kind of lay it out and to understand it logically. We'll illustrate that for you and see if you can work all this out. Genesis 45.5, Joseph says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, to his brothers. You sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You sent me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You sold me here, because God sent me before you to preserve life. Who's responsible for Joseph being in Egypt? Who's responsible for it? Is, it? is it Joseph's brothers or is it the Lord? That's the question. Genesis 50 verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, in, am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Well, well I mean, whose purposes are being fulfilled here? The brothers' purposes or the Lord's purposes? That's the question. Whose intentions are being satisfied? His brothers or the Lord? That's the question. Was it the actions of the brothers or the sovereign working of God? This is difficult. This can't really be fully comprehended. Every time we see anything in Scripture that the sovereignty of God and the volition of man come together, we end up with a tension that's very hard to sort out. In fact, many false beliefs are the result of people trying to sort those things out. End up with hyper-Calvinism. You end up with open theism, for instance. In our attempt to explain how the sovereign working of God and the volition of man work together, oftentimes one or the other suffers. Either we downplay the sovereignty of God or we overemphasize the volition of man, and all sorts of false beliefs come about by trying to harmonize these things. Joseph was not saying that God had taken the lemons of life and made lemonade. What Joseph was saying is that he recognized that God had a grander plan at work. Everything had meaning. The coat of many colors and the hatred of the brothers and being thrown in the pit and the Ishmaelites and Potiphar's wife's false accusations and the two years in prison, it all had meaning because God is sovereign. Furthermore, Joseph understood that a man's plans not only could not foil God's plans, but that they too were part of God's plan. Sort all that out, I don't know. That is, his brothers, out of rebellion and wickedness, hated him. Guilty. They sought to do him great harm. Guilty. They exercised their will. Guilty free from any sense of personal guilt or care for God's law, and they were guilty. They fully and freely exercised willful rebellion against God. Joseph felt the brunt of it, and they were guilty. But Joseph still understood that even this fit somehow into God's larger plan, and that behind it was divine meaning. And so we call this the conundrum of God's sovereignty because it's next to impossible to understand, again, how volitional creatures like us and the sovereign God can exist and interact together. But we see it all throughout Scripture. 
Who sold Joseph into slavery? Was it the brothers or was it God? Who had Joseph cast into prison? Was it Potiphar or was it God? When man fully and freely exercises his will, is he operating independent of God's sovereignty? Absolutely not. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is absolutely sovereign. And, and if that wasn't hard enough for you, it's going to get harder. God is absolutely sovereign, and that includes sovereignty even over men and even over the heart of men. In Exodus chapter 7, it says, uh, the Lord speaking says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He's talking to Moses. He says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders, though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, what's the Lord signaling? Say, Moses, I'm going to send you in. You're going you're to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And uh, when you go, Pharaoh's not going to respond. And the Lord is saying, that's going to be the case because I'm going to harden his heart. Now, there's another passage that indicates Pharaoh hardened his heart. Both these things are working together. But God is putting it at at his own feet. The reason Pharaoh's not going to let you go, I'm going to harden his heart. God hardens hearts. God also turns hearts. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Maybe that's difficult, right? The Lord is sovereign even over the heart of people because generally what our conception is is that there is an island of free will. There's an island of free will, and the Lord dare not set foot past the boundary of my island of free will. Well, God doesn't care about your island. God doesn't respect the boundary of your island or my island. And we should be thankful that that's the case because not only does God, according to his own prerogative, harden hearts and turn hearts, But the Lord also opens hearts. And if you understand the nature of man and the fact that we are wholly sinful and unable to save ourselves, we need God to impose upon that island. We need the Lord to open our hearts. So Acts 16.14, Paul and others are preaching the gospel. And there's a woman named Lydia who heard in Acts 16.14, it says... One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. What does it say? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The same Lord who's sovereign over the heart, meaning that he can harden hearts, is the Lord who's sovereign over hearts, meaning he can open hearts. You want God to be sovereign over the heart. In fact, you actually believe that God is sovereign over the heart, whether you've articulated it or not, because I know you pray for your unsaved loved ones. Why do you pray for your unsaved loved ones? If God's not allowed to step foot over the boundary of the island of human will, why in the world are you praying for your unsaved loved ones? Because instinctually you understand that God can reach into the heart, and God can open the heart, and God can, like he did for Lydia, make somebody attend to or listen to the gospel. Does that mean then, if God is sovereign over hearts, that mankind then is not responsible for his own actions? That's the natural question that arises. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and if God raised him up for the very purpose of getting glory through Pharaoh, then why in the world was Pharaoh held accountable for the actions, uh, for his actions, and ultimately drowned in the Red Sea? If God's sovereign over hearts, then how in the world can you hold man accountable? God is sovereign even over the heart of man, and all things are working according to his sovereign plan, then the suggestion is we're not accountable. 
And frankly, God is to be blamed for all the ills of the world. Man's off the hook if he's sovereign. How can anyone be blamed for resisting the sovereign God? Those are good objections. And those are the natural objections when we start talking about the sovereignty of God. And maybe some of those objections have come up in your mind. The Apostle Paul understood those objections. So much so that in Romans chapter 9, when he begins to speak of the sovereignty of God, he presupposes those types of objections and deals with them preemptively. In Romans chapter 9, verse 14. And in the context here, what Paul is doing in speaking of the sovereignty of God is talking about how God has reserved for himself the prerogative to give mercy to whomever he chooses and to withhold mercy from whomever he chooses. That's the context. And Paul understands that when you start talking about the sovereignty of God, especially the sovereignty of God over the hearts of man, all sorts of objections come to the surface, and so he deals with this. And again, he's writing a letter, but he's assuming an opponent, and he preemptively answers the objections that he knows are going to come. And so as we read this passage, remember this. However you interpret Romans chapter 9 and the argument that Paul is making, Paul assumes that whatever it is he's trying to say elicits these types of objections. Whatever he's saying elicits these types of objections. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Again, after immediately speaking of God's sovereignty and his prerogative to show mercy upon whomever he chooses and withhold mercy from whomever he chooses. Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. And how does he explain the fact that there's no injustice on God's part? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, Paul, that's not an answer. We're talking about whether there's injustice on the part of God by exercising his sovereign will to harden hearts or or to loose hearts. And, And his response is, hey, there's no injustice to God. Here's the proof. He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. All Paul is doing is appealing to the sovereign prerogative of the Lord and say, no, he's not unjust because he reserves that right for himself. That's it. It's not really a logical argument. Simply saying God is sovereign and he can do as he chooses. Verse 16, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is his prerogative. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so as an illustration, Paul brings up Pharaoh and says, this is how God has operated, this is how God has always operated, this is what he did with Pharaoh. Uh, He hardens Pharaoh's heart and says, I actually raised you up for this purpose so I can show my power in you. And then what? He actually even then judges Pharaoh. Paul is illustrating the sovereignty of God. Verse 18, it says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And what did he just say? What did Paul just say? He said, so then it depends. He's talking about salvation here. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. It's not about human will, it's about divine will, and he hardens whomever he chooses, and he gives mercy to whomever he chooses, and you say that's a very hard truth, and you say, wait a second, how then can God ever blame anybody for rejecting him if that's the case? If it's all God's sovereignty, and if he can loosen hearts, and he can harden hearts, and he can open hearts, then how can you ever blame anybody for ever resisting him? And so verse 19 Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he find fault? 
Again, whatever Paul is teaching here elicits that question. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And what's his response? And this is another non-response from Paul. You say, and, and really this is the first century version of we have an island of human volition, human will, and the Lord better not step over it. Because if he steps over it and he actually exercises divine, sovereign prerogative on the hearts of men, then aren't we all just robots? How can you blame anybody for rejecting? Paul hits this head on, and look at his answer in verse 20. And again, I say it's another another non-answer. And this is where we go wrong, because at this point we're trying to logically work all of this out, and Paul doesn't try to logically work it all out. He simply says this in verse 20, Who do you think you are? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's it. It's just an appeal to God's sovereignty. Who do you think you are? O man, to answer back to God. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That is heart. God is sovereign. If he chooses to open this heart and to not open that heart and to shed mercy here and to shed mercy there, that's his divine prerogative. And there's objections in your mind. And Paul, I'm telling you, is answering those objections right here in this passage. Paul is quoting Isaiah, verse 45 in this passage, when he speaks to the potter and the clay. And he says this in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there's no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, and there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there's no other. I form light, and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation, and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting, or to a woman, with what are you in labor? The Lord is sovereign over his creation. So sovereign, we don't have time to get into this, just about done here. He's even sovereign, not only over hearts, not only over circumstances, he's even sovereign over the wicked. And so Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And so we could go to Isaiah 46, we can go to Isaiah 10, and we can see how the Lord uses Cyrus, king of Persia. We can see how he used the Assyrians and how he uh, would, would use these pagan, wicked nations to send against his people. And he would actually call them the axe that he's wielding in his own hand. And then in Isaiah chapter 10, after saying that he's going to send the Assyrians against Israel... In Isaiah 10, 7, he says, But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. He's saying, listen, I'm sending the Assyrians. He says, the rod of my anger. But they don't know that I'm sending them. That's not their intention. They intend evil, but they're actually being used by me to accomplish my will. And then Isaiah 10 continues, and he begins to speak about how he then is going to judge the Assyrians for their evil intentions. God uses even the wicked, and the wicked, even then, are no way exonerated. You know this and believe this because you understand how the crucifixion happened? 
You understand Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 when he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who is responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is God responsible for it? Is it according to his divine plan? Or are men guilty for it? Well, we know men are guilty for it because at the end of Peter's sermon, he calls these same men to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And many of them do. In Acts chapter 4, when the disciples later are suffering persecution, it says in verse 23 that when they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, what did they say? Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, you're sovereign over creation, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who's guilty? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. Yeah, they're guilty. Who's ultimately responsible? We have to say the responsibility lies in the hands of wicked men. And behind that, we understand that God has a plan which is predestined to take place. To understand the completeness of the sovereignty of God is to know that God is beyond every circumstance. He works all things according to His will, to accomplish His purposes. Yet this truth can never excuse or dismiss man's personal responsibility. How does that all work out? I really am not sure. But I can point you to passage after passage after passage after passage that lays both out. He understood the completeness of God's sovereignty, accepted the conundrum of God's sovereignty, and this is very quick. As a result, if, you, if, you, if you're willing to grasp and accept those first two and not balk at God's sovereignty, then you can rest in the comfort of God's sovereignty. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph accepted this. And so when he saw his brothers and recalled all that they did to him, he could freely forgive. He could release. He could pardon. He could see past their harmful actions and see the sovereignty of God. But you say, they hated him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. They uh, told my father that I had died. They, 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 they. What did Joseph do instead? God. God is working. Are they guilty? Yes. As far as we are concerned, we're not the judge, and we're to trust the sovereign working of God. Now, we're a little bit different than Joseph. Actually, a little bit more difficult on the tail end, because Joseph had the benefit of 2020 hindsight. Joseph could come through all of this, and he could look back and he say, oh, no, listen, I'm second in command of Egypt. I can see how God worked all this out. I see it. He could see of this abundance of supply of, of, of food. He could see how many people are being saved alive because of these efforts. So, so he had the benefit of 2020 hindsight. We are not always going to have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. 
We're not always going to be able to look and say, oh, I see now. I see how it all worked together. It makes sense. Okay. But one thing we can say about Joseph is even before he got to second in command, he was trusting God. He was trusting God all along the way. He understood he had the ability to interpret dreams. He understood that that belonged to the Lord. He was willing to do service to the Lord to interpret the dreams of the butler and the baker. And the fa- I mean, he was faithful and consistent even before things took a turn to the positive for him. But we're not always going to have 20-20 hindsight. And that's why it's important to exercise faith. The comfort of God's sovereignty is the ever-present knowledge that all things in life have purpose. All working according to his purpose. Incredibly comforting to the believer. Because according to the scriptures, his purposes are always for our good. And you know we have to go to Romans 8. The comfort of God's sovereignty is knowing that all things good, bad, and easy, and hard are working together to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes the all things include suffering. So Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You jump down to verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? A tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's no absence of difficulty here. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate it from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That confidence only comes when you first accept the sovereign working of God and that he's actually sovereign over circumstances so that we can say even this difficulty is not going to separate us from his love. It's not that God's love and his purpose for us precludes tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or offenses from others. It's simply to say that he's sovereign over it all. When you... Embrace this when we embrace this. It turns our fear of a sovereign God into a comfort and a reliance upon his sovereignty. It helps us understand that God is the one working behind the scenes in all circumstances. The sovereignty of God is not something to be feared, it's not something to be rejected, it's not something to be argued with, it's not something to be balked at. The sovereignty of God is something to rest in. It's hard to accept the fact that. Negative circumstances are good for us. We must learn that the greater good is not a peaceful, painless, trouble-free life, but God's glory and our sanctification. And he's faithful to accomplish all of that for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, unforgiveness. Destructive. It betrays the forgiveness of God. It bypasses the justice of God. It belittles the suffering of God. And it balks at the sovereignty of God. So kind of my invitation for us this morning is this. There are offenses in your life that you're still hanging on to. And it's, it's, you compartmentalize. There's a corner in your heart where you say, Lord, that's mine. Your mind goes there. This is what stirs up bitterness. This is what stirs up animosity. You find yourself returning to it repeatedly. And it's there because you're determined that others have victimized you. Others have victimized you and they haven't yet paid for it. Well, in addition to everything else we've already seen last week, release that to the sovereignty of God. Lord, I don't know what you have tried to work through this. I don't see how it all comes together. 
I, I don't have the advantage that Joseph had. I don't understand how it all works together. I don't know how it's for my good. Uh, but I trust that you are sovereign. I trust you're sovereign over circumstances, even the heart of people. And then what? You just let go and say, Lord, if you will judge, you judge. I trust that you're always going to carry out justice. Whatever justice you execute is going to be consistent with perfect justice. And so I release it to you. And I know in your sovereignty, you're going to work out all things for my good. Isn't that amazing? Theology applied practically and how it has an immediate effect on your heart and on my heart. So that's the invitation this morning. Pray that way. If not now, at some point, release it to the Lord. Trust that hanging on to that thing is going to betray his forgiveness and bypass his justice and belittle Christ's suffering and ultimately balks at his sovereignty. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I understand that was a lot for us to take in this morning, and it's a hard truth. It's a stretching truth. Your sovereignty is something that's been debated. It's something that's been fought over. It's something we're very, very uncomfortable with in our sinfulness. The difficulty of understanding your perfect sovereignty and the free will of man is something that we obviously cannot reconcile, which explains why there's so much argumentation and difficulty. But Lord, I pray that you just help us to recognize that Scriptures are replete with accounts of both your sovereignty and the volition of man and these things in some way uh, working together in a way that we can't immediately explain. But at the end of the day, help us to trust you. We recognize that understanding you are sovereign gives meaning and purpose to the most difficult situations in life. We understand whereas we may be tempted to exclude you from the most difficult situations we've suffered because we don't want any to think that you are to blame for these things. On the other hand, what you're saying to us is you are the transcendent God behind the scenes working all things according to your purpose. And so we're far better off to lay all these things at your feet and to recognize that you are working something through it all. Lord, I pray this morning for those of us this morning who are still struggling Bitterness and animosity, unforgiveness. There's things that we just can't seem to get over. We don't want to get over. We want others to pay. We want to be vindicated. I pray you'd help us to relinquish that. Give it over to your justice. Then help us to trust your sovereignty, understanding that there is meaning and purpose in every aspect of life, especially for those who are called according to your purpose. We have the confidence that not only is there meaning and purpose, but that purpose is always for your glory and for our ultimate good. And help us also to recognize that our ultimate good does not necessarily mean good in this life. Help us to maintain that eternal perspective, understanding that the greatest good for us is to be purified, to be presented holy and blameless before Christ at his coming. Lord, help us. For those of us who have been stretched this morning, give us grace. Help us to grapple with this big and hard truth and ultimately help us to settle uh, on what Scripture clearly teaches. Lord, we thank you for all of this, and we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we thank you for your sovereign rule. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.